We are walking through the faith-filled church. We're seeing that here in this book. Last, last week we took a break and let Mike share uh, how his uh, support raising efforts are going and how we might come alongside of him in the future ministry God has called him to. But this week we're jumping right back into Titus chapter 3. Uh, we will look at verses 9 through 11 this morning. Next week, we will finish up the book, uh, verses 12 through 15, by looking at partnerships centered around the faith. Uh, and we see Paul list off a bunch of individuals here. We'll talk a little bit about that and how we can partner with others to uh, proclaim the gospel. And then there was a passage that we didn't intentionally skip over. Uh, it was supposed to be in one message, but got shifted along and then <laughs> got forgot about um, and so we're going to jump back to that, and that's chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And we're going to look at faith at work. So what's it mean to be good workers uh, and live, living out our faith uh, as good employees? Um, so that will be in uh, three weeks uh, on the 20th. Uh, this morning we're in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Do you know someone who always has to be right? You know that person? Now don't. Don't nudge anybody. Don't look at somebody here in the room if that person is there. You know that one person, that friend that you have, they just always have to be right about everything. And they'll argue with you over and over and over again about something. You know, they're, they're the ones that they, they start arguments about what is the best fast food fry. Like who has the best fries? Is it Culver's? Is it Wendy's? Is it Arby's? McDonald's? Um, they, they're the ones that when you say it'll take you about 30 minutes to get to this place, they're like, no, nope, actually it's 25 and a half minutes. And you're like, wait, 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 wait a second. Like 25 and a half. Like, I think it's about 30. No, 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 no. It's exactly, I, I Googled it the other day and they like, they, they know everything. They're the expert on everything. They're always looking to get that upper hand, the last word in the conversation. For some reason, they thoroughly enjoy arguments it's not like it just happens once in a while when they're really passionate about any, something. It can happen with anything. Well, if you follow basketball or have followed the news at all in the last couple of weeks, you've probably heard the name LeVar Ball. LeVar Ball. Anybody hear that name? Heard that name? LeVar is the father of the number two overall pick in the NBA. Again, some of you could care less about the NBA. I'm most often there. Uh, the, his son, Lonzo Ball, was drafted by the Lakers, uh, but his son's not the one that's making all the news these days. It's LeVar, because LeVar is known for outlandish comments, uh, and they are ongoing over and over again. Like every single week, there's something that he just says, and he argues about everything. So the latest outburst in the last couple of weeks is that he boasted that he could beat Michael Jordan in his prime. Now, LeVar... In his prime, in college, played one season of basketball for, like, the University of Washington State and averaged two points a game. And he thinks he can beat Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan said to a, a couple, um, or to a basketball camp that he's like, he couldn't even beat me if I was one-legged, which I, I believe the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, it will never be beat on a one-on-one -on -one game. Then this past Wednesday... LeVar came into the news by saying that he was better than the tight end Rob Gronkowski from the Patriots. I mean, LeVar didn't even play football. <laughs> and he's saying he's better than Rob Gronkowski. Uh, he said, he couldn't hang with me back in my heyday. I was too fast, too strong. 
I mean, LeVar's one of those guys, again, that has to be right, has to be the best at everything. He's someone who will seemingly argue about anything. And we, we know those kind of people, at least one of those people. Maybe you're saying, oh, yeah, that's, that's me. Someone who just can't help arguing. And then when we get into a conversation, we can't just help but get into that argument too. Like we could care less about it, but we find ourselves arguing with this individual. Well, this morning, as we near this end of the short letter from Paul to the young church planner, Titus, Paul instructs Titus in the church there how to respond to those within the church that are, are being divisive. Those that are just having to be right about everything. But in reality, they're really, really wrong. Paul's already given some straightforward instructions on how Titus should deal with and silence faith deceivers back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. But here in chapter 3, he raises the stakes when he calls for both an avoidance and a rejection of those who are being divisive. Because Paul is passionate about unity in the church. Because that's God's eternal plan. That's why Christ died, that through our unity, we are displaying God's wisdom. The purpose of God, the work of the cross, and the success of mission are at stake in the church. And so when there are divisive issues that come up, Paul is going to be adamant against those divisive issues and for, passionate for unity in the church. So in verses 1 through 8, he's described how faith is displayed in the norm of everyday life as we live toward others in humility. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Motivated by the mercy of God and messengers of grace. But then the verses we read this morning present a stark contrast to that type of living. A contrast from those who devote themselves to good works as they live on the mission of God to now those who are just divisive in all of their discussions, arguments, and actions. And what we observe in this short passage, verses 9 through 11, is that Paul wants Titus, the church in Crete, and really God wants us as a church to grasp that a faith-filled church fervently protects the gospel. A faith-filled church fervently protects the gospel. That's the big idea here because so great are the benefits of the knowledge and our response to God's grace that no other priorities should be allowed to creep into our life in the church. Nothing other than the gospel of God's grace should be the top priority in who we are as the faith-filled church. And so to that end, Paul instructs Titus in verse 9, but avoid foolish debates genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. Once again, this is God's authoritative word for us, so let's ask him through these verses to impress it on our hearts this morning. Father, we ask that you would do your work through this passage in our lives. This is one of those passages that, uh, I'll be honest, I wasn't really looking forward to preaching. Uh, but you've put it in your word. Uh, and you've called us to be students of your word, to observe all things. And so uh, even though I wanted to skip over it, it's here. And so you have it for us. And so we had asked that you would impress it upon our hearts, uh, that we would evaluate our own lives, not just look out towards others, that we would evaluate. Maybe we are being divisive in our conversations, debates. Um, maybe there's, there's 
individuals calling us to repentance that we're not listening to. And so God, impress this word on our hearts. Uh, help us feel the seriousness of this protection of the gospel, of your grace, uh, and that we would uh, be changed because of your word this morning. In your name, amen. When both our faith and our practice are consistent with each other, Paul has told us that the gospel is made beautiful or attractive. But when beliefs and actions are at odds with one another, God's grace is muted to the world around us. And that's why Paul instructs us in these verses to fervently protect the gospel by, one, avoiding divisive issues, and two, rejecting divisive people. Here God calls us to unity around and in the gospel, and also to a passionate defense of it. Now, in our individualistic culture today, where self-expression is one of the highest values, any form of confrontation, any form of correction, is often deemed intolerant and even discriminatory, no matter what issue it might be. And so this passage is not popular in our society. If in a society that preaches everyone has a right to express their own opinions, these verses in Titus 3, and what we would call the doctrine of church discipline, are extremely offensive to the modern mind. And when we read these verses, scenes from the, the scarlet letter, where this individual tiptoes down the sidewalk with a large red A embroidered on her chest, those start to come to our mind. Or, or names like David Koresh or Jim Jones, other cult leaders. I mean, is that what, what Paul's talking about here in relation to avoiding and rejecting? Is Paul merely presenting this radical teaching of a lunatic fringe of how we're supposed to treat individuals within the church? If we look at the majority of church practice today, one would conclude that Paul's teaching here in Titus 3 is just optional. And while it's sad to say, the truth is no aspect of church life in our day is more neglected than this one. In fact, David Platt writes, the contemporary church's disregard for this clear teaching of Holy Scripture is perhaps the greatest visible act of disobedience to our Lord. And so if that's the case, then our study and then our application of this passage is vitally important. Important not so that we can say we're more biblical as a church, but that it's vital for our own purity, for our own Christ-likeness and holiness, and for the integrity of the gospel message that we share. So with that in mind, we want to first contemplate Paul's instruction in verse 9 to avoid divisive issues. But avoid, having just instructed Titus and the church in Crete to insist on certain things that adorn the gospel, Paul now tells them to steer clear from other things. Things like foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law. In a blog post called, entitled 25 Silly Things Church Members Fight Over, Thomas Rayner shares a list of actual occurrences of divisive issues that have crept up in the church. Some of these may be familiar to you. You may have encountered them if you've been in the church. Arguments over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard or Brandon Dyer's beard. Right? Uh, fights over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. A church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. 
A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinets to purchase, whether they be black or brown, two or three or four drawers. A dispute over whether the worship leader should have shoes on during the service. Business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. And actually, it took them two business meetings to just decide if they were going to purchase that. A fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. An argument over whether the fake dusty plants should be removed from the platform, and the list goes on and on. Again, we, we might snicker, laugh a little bit at those, but if we've spent some time in the church, we know that divisive issues come up, right? Uh, we've been in those business meetings where there's a discussion about what color the carpet should be in the new building, uh, or the remodeling job, what should happen. But Paul here, he doesn't give us the exact nature or even the subject of these divisive issues that are happening. He just kind of generally says they are foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, disputes about the law. Gives us a little bit of information there at the end, disputes about the law, but he doesn't say if it's arguing over the color of the carpet, whether they're arguing about the form of education uh, that's most biblical for children, disputes over whether skirts touch the top of the knee or not. Not There's no no information here what's actually going on which is probably good right because if he were to give us some more details we might be tempted to jump into um, into these debates as well however this last phrase after foolish debates genealogies and quarrels is something that he's already hit on in the in this book so far in chapter one the issues at hand were likely something to do with application of the laws presented by what he says in verse 10 of chapter 1, the circumcision party, also known as the Judaizers. This isn't the first time Paul has referenced even these divisions in what's known as the pastoral epistles. For in 1 Timothy 1, turn back just a couple pages, he says the same thing to Timothy as it relates to these divisive issues that are happening in the church. Look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 11. It says, As I urged you when I was, went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussions. Again, foolish debates. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the, law, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. That conforms, he's saying this teaching conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. So as he's writing here to Timothy, he's, he's rightly concerned about all these divisive debates and issues that are happening in the church. Verse 4, he tells us that they were promoting empty speculations rather than God's plan of faith. One commentator notes, whether Paul's description of these issues here in chapter 3 of Titus are an amplification of false teaching, we read in 1 Timothy or in 
uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 of Titus, that's uncertain. We're not again sure what, what's happening here. But even if these errors are less significant in terms of diluting the central issue of salvation, Paul is still recognizing that there's long-range damage and division within the church that results from such controversies, such debates and foolish disputes. Now, what then does that mean for us? Is Paul saying we shouldn't argue about anything? That we should just take whatever is said from the leadership and just blindly obey it? No, he's not saying to avoid deep, even intense theological debate. Those things can be helpful, but always do it in a form that defends and protects the gospel. Don't do it as a way to destroy what the gospel has created. And so the big idea that he's trying to get at is avoid these foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, because it's disunifying. Uh, it creates this disunity within the church. And so he calls for this fervent defense of the gospel, and especially from the grasp of legalism, which adds a strict adherence to the law to the gospel. And so if that is exactly what Paul's going against as it, is, as it is in 1 Timothy, as we read in Galatians, this legalism, then what he's saying here is that what's taking place within the church, these quarrels, disputes, is actually adding to the gospel. This false teaching of a Jesus plus theology that the circumcision party was giving. And so then that was what everybody was disputing about. So Paul says, avoid those kind of divisive issues. People who add to the work of Jesus Christ. That say to the Gentiles, now that you're saved, you still have to be circumcised. You have to, it's Jesus plus. Or now that you're saved, you need to act in this way. You need to cut your hair, wear these kind of clothes, sing these certain type of songs, do this, do that. Adding to the work of Christ. In the words of C.J. Mahaney, what Paul is saying to us here is keep the main thing, the main thing. Defend the gospel at all costs. And in doing so, then we'll avoid foolish speculations. We can avoid arguments and feuds over one's family status and how it relates to our acceptance in the kingdom of Christ. It's these types of issues that are divisive in nature. These debates seek to divide, not unify the church. And so for that reason, Paul concludes at the end of 9, it says those kind of debates are are not only foolish, they're unprofitable and worthless. Again, that's where we see a stark contrast between what he said in verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, talking about the mercy of God. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe God might be careful to devote themselves to good works, and those are good and profitable. But these foolish debates are unprofitable and worthless. You see, there's a difference between those who are deceiving and those who are truly faith-filled. Those who are seeking to deceive carry on and on in their debates. They have to be right about whatever it is that they're talking about. They're, they're bringing up disputes just to argue. And in the end, they're unprofitable and wor worthless. They, they get nowhere. They just want to argue for argue's sake. But those who are devoted to good works... They contend for or insist on the gospel. They are good and profitable for everyone. And so Paul is telling us that the faith-filled church fervently protects the gospel by avoiding these divisive issues and seeking unity within the church. 
We are to be those who seek harmony with humility between our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we share the attitude of Christ when we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So when we live out these words here, we seek unity. Oh, we can have disagreements, we can talk about theological issues, but we're, also, we're always pursuing unity around Christ and Him crucified. The faith-filled church lives out the words of the German theologian Peter Meiderlin that says, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, there's liberty. And in all things, there's charity. We've heard that statement before, right? And we, we love to hear that statement. Yes, that's true. In essentials, we want to unify. Non-essentials, let's give liberty. In all things, let's have love. It's, we love to hear it, but the question is, for us, are we eager to apply it? It's easy to say, in essentials, unity. Non-essentials, liberty. But it's harder to apply that. You know, when there's something that creeps up, a little disagreement about the way someone educates their children. Or this, this certain doctrine. It's easy for us to start debating about that and dividing. Applying verse 9 here first seems easy because most of us start thinking about someone else's sin. And that we're right. Their propensity to bring up the divisive issues. But I think... What Paul wants Titus and the church there, and I think what God wants us to do, is evaluate our own hearts. Not the person that comes to your mind that's divisive, but evaluate your own heart. In fact, Paul calls us to do this before we were to even go and address a brother or sister in Christ. Remember what he says in Galatians chapter 6? You turn there real quick with me. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Paul says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, again, whether that's divisive issue, whether that's surely sin, the truly sin that they're caught in, you who are spiritual, you are faith-filled, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, doing what? Watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. You see, we are to watch out, guard our own hearts, for we ourselves could be tempted into these foolish debates genealogies, quarrels, disputes about, about the law. We have to be on guard about legalism in our own hearts before we call our brothers and sisters on the carpet for theirs. And so, church, let's not, let's not look down our long, our long pharisaical noses at others, but first guard and watch over our own hearts, the propensity that we might have to be divisive in debating what we want to be right about and dividing and destroying unity within the church. So Paul exhorts us here to seek unity by protecting the gospel. Avoid divisive issues, but then in verse 10 through 11 he says, reject a divisive person. Paul moves quickly from not only addressing the issues that are swirling around, but now to the people who are propagating these debates and quarrels. As we noted in chapter 1, when Paul first warned these false teachers, what's, what he's really going at is the motivation and the heart behind these debates. That is the real problem. Look back again at, at verses 10 through 16 of, of Titus 1. It says, For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and de deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It's necessary to silence them. They're ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. 
Look down at verse 15. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Again, we see here they're ruining entire households. These who are debating about all of these uh, disputes about the law, they're the divisive issues. This divisive person is set out to get money dishonestly. So Paul says their minds and consciences are defiled. They are detestable and disobedient. These issues that they keep bringing up are unprofitable and worthless. It's these kind of people who love to divide what God has unified at the cross. It's these type of people who are always looking for a fight that Paul instructs us to reject. Now, at first, we see that word reject, and we think, man, that's, that's kind of harsh, isn't it, Paul? I mean, aren't we supposed to be loving and gracious and, and kind? I mean, it doesn't seem all that kind to reject people, does it? But notice that this rejection comes after something. Reject, verse 10, a divisive person after a first and second warning. Paul here is summarizing the teachings of Jesus on church discipline found in Matthew chapter 18, where Christ instructs the church to, when they become aware of a sinning brother or sister, that they go to them first individually, second with a witness, and then finally with the whole fellowship being involved if there's no repentance in this individual. So Paul's call here to reject or remove a divisive person from the church is in fact full of grace and full of love. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer notes, nothing, nothing can be more cruel than leniency which abandons others to sin. It's cruel for us to leave people in sin. Nothing can be then more compassionate than a severe reprimand that calls another Christian in one's community back from path of sin. The truth is there's nothing more loving and compassionate than identifying where a brother or sister in Christ is sinning and calling them to genuine repentance and restoration. We're doing so for their good. It's it's loving to call someone away from harm. I mean, that's what we do with our children, right? They start running out to the street. We yell after them. We run after them. We tell them to stop before something bad will happen. It's for their good. And so, too, we're to run after our brothers and sisters in Christ. Call them out. Tell them to stop debating these foolish things. Stop being divisive. This is for their good. Yet, Paul acknowledges a sad reality at the end of verse, or in verse 11. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning, he is self-condemned. Even after the first and second warning, there are people who do not respond. They do not repent and are not restored to the faith family. And so Paul concludes that this type of person, the ESV translated, they have gone astray, they're warped. They're sinning. He is then self-condemned. In the persistence of their sin, they are so warped that they do not hear our loving pleas to turn back. And so... He says they're participating in their own condemnation. Again, David Platt comments on the meaning of this word self-condemned, and he states, when the Greek word is broken down into two parts, or into parts it means to judge down on oneself, 
hence to be self-condemned. So in both action and attitude, the sinner is without excuse. They're passing judgment on themselves. Oh, he may not see it, for he is warped, twisted, and self-deceived. And he may even attempt to use scripture to justify his sin, claiming the leading of the Spirit and sometimes even the providence of God. Yet there are times when he might even say, my head tells me this is wrong, but my heart tells me it was never more right. We may have encountered those people. Actually, in the last weeks, when I was serving at Redeemer, we encountered one of those individuals. This is the right thing that I am supposed to do. And all of us as elders and many throughout the church were pleading with them. It's not. It's not the right thing. Showing them in scripture. Yet in their heart, they were saying, this is right. But that's when the loving grace of church discipline comes and and we call them to repentance with grief, with humility, with self-examination and a broken heart. We confront our erring brother or sister. And then if necessary, if they do not hear us, we shun or we reject them. I mean, God forbid that we would love, we who say we love this person would let them just go about and, and sin. We just stand by and do nothing while they sin. Again, this this rejection is a a form of love to them. We also must acknowledge, though, that this rejection of a divisive person is for the protection of the church, not only for their good, but also to protect the church and its message. Because if our behavior is to match our belief, as Paul has reminded us over and over again here in Titus, anyone who would cause compromise in either one of those areas must be confronted And then if unrepentant, they are to be rejected. That not only affirms the holiness of the church, but also confirms and authenticates the message that we are declaring to the world around us. As he's pointed out in chapter 2, it adorns the gospel. You see, when the church cannot agree on sin, the gospel is weakened. When we can't call a loving brother or sister to Christ because of their sin, our message is weakened. If we cannot agree on the essentials, or if we're characterized by conflict and division, that's not only displeasing to God, but it also means we would be ineffective to a lost world. So a distracted church filled with destructive people is in fact powerless and unfruitful. If we as a church ignore the deteriorating effects of divisiveness, disruptive individuals in our church, we will become unprofitable, useless in the big picture and the mission we have. One author rightly notes, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. How could he say that? Well, because when we are not protecting the gospel and the effects, the transforming effects of the gospel on lives, calling people from sin to faith then christ is no longer the priority the gospel is no longer the priority in the church but a faith-filled church that protects the gospel is both fruitful and powerful and it displays the transforming effect of the gospel on broken sinful yet repentant people so the end of all pursuit of these individuals again whether for divisive issues or just plain divisiveness themselves is to call them to repentance and restoration and when that would happen if if 10 and 11 didn't happen and they turned and they were repentant then that would be a powerful testimony of the gospel power to the world around us and so these verses here present 
to us a reason for us to protect the gospel and protect one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the charge for us as a church is to let us be fervent in protecting the gospel. Avoid divisive debates and quarrels. Avoiding even legalism in our own hearts. Not shying away from lovingly confronting sin in one another. But doing so, but in doing so, letting us guard our own hearts. That we would be patient in pursuing repentance from our erring brothers or sisters. But also vigilant in our opposition of their sin. And when necessary, rejecting those who are condemning themselves by their unrepentance. For God's reputation and the reputation of God's family, his church is on the line. So we as a church have the responsibility to reflect God's holiness in dealing with sin within the church. Again, these are words that are not joy-filled, fun, what we all hope to hear this morning, the effects of sin, but it's true life. Even in the last couple weeks, we've heard a lot of things that are happening in churches surrounding us. There's There's sin that's creeping up in families and it is destroying the church. It's weakening their message because people are are thinking they are settled and comfortable. They're okay when they sit in a pew on Sunday morning. Like, I'm, I'm good. They're not being fervent in protecting their belief in the gospel, how the gospel changes their lives. And pastors, over and over again, are, are weakening the churches by assuming the gospel. So let us not do that. Let us as a church be truly faith-filled as we protect the gospel and protect one another from sin, from divisiveness, and seek unity in the church. God, would you do that in us? Uh, Would you help us pursue unity? Unity around what you call us to be unified, and that is the glorious mercy that you have extended to us in Jesus Christ. God, we, many of us, have grown up in the church and we've seen we've seen hypocrisy in the church, we've seen church splits, we've seen arguments that saddens us, and we might even be saying, oh, that could never happen to me. I would never take part in that. God, help us be ones that step back and evaluate our own hearts asking where there might be a form of legalism creeping up in us that would cause us to be divisive and debate over things that are are really unprofitable and worthless. And God, help us to be watching over one another so that verses 10 and 11 don't have to happen here. We don't have to reject a person uh, who is unrepentant, but we would be we would all be individuals who when someone lovingly confronts sin in our lives that that we would be, we would acknowledge that. We would be open to that. We would even welcome that. So create that culture here. Create it through the gospel being central. For when we look to the cross, we see our sin that puts you there. We see the mercy that kept your son there. So God, now as we participate together in the breaking of the bread that reminds us once again of your work on the cross, even affect us with the unity that we have with one another as a faith family. That we do this together 
we participate in the Lord's Supper together, showing our unity and affirming our faith in you, and you alone. In your name, amen.